0: This week, I had the great pleasure of welcoming back Bill Saunders, clinical psychologist who's been on the podcast before um, but retired and has come out of retirement. Now, this is a fascinating episode. If you or anybody has ever had any mental health issue and you've been to see a doctor or a psychiatrist, then I think you really probably want to watch this. Bill really exp- exposes and talks through the whole Um, psychiatry model that pervades the health, the mental health industry right down to the DSM five and four and how that's put together and really exposes just the holes in the science behind how it's all, how it all comes together. And he doesn't do this just to pick holes just for the sake of picking holes. What he really is able to do and what he's done through his own research is just drill that all down to some very simple common things, which are very human. And his suggested model is rather than asking what's wrong with you, it's to ask what happened? Because more often than not, it's the trauma that we've encountered in early childhood, which has been a recurring theme in the podcast, is at the source of why many of the symptoms that are turning up in your life right now. This is a super engaging conversation with Bill, who's super knowledgeable, and he's just got a wealth of information in his head. From scientific studies to a- academic research to actual practical real life, you know, being in the trenches of being a psychotherapist himself. So this is a super exciting and super interesting episode, and he's it- here in Western Australia. So it's 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 really cool, and I think if you've had anything to do with the men with mental health or the mental health industry, you really really should watch this because it's it's super illuminating. So enjoy, Bill. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today we have the great pleasure of welcoming back Mr. Bill Saunders. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So it was um, nearly three years ago we last spoke. Remarkable. And remarkable, <laughs> it was yes.
1: remarkable in that it was three years ago. Yes,
0: it's quite, um, it's quite recent. And, and we really did, you really did um, go through with a lot of detail talking about addiction Um, and particularly the policy and the treatment of addiction and how there seems to be this gap between what's actually happening and what really is happening. Yes. And uh, yeah, but also at that point you had
1: um, retired. Yes, just. And that's not quite the case now. No, it's not quite the case now because of COVID. So I had a very splendid year or so of writing a book and taking holidays Mm. and then um, I was confronted with COVID so there was a sense of Ah, so I've gone back to being a psychotherapist two days a week, and it's absolutely delightful. Excellent,
0: excellent. So you phoned me up not so long ago and got in touch and said, I I really think we need to do another podcast. Yes. So at a high level,
1: why why was that? Because in writing a book about psychotherapy, Hmm. my frustrations with the medical model and the management of mental health via psychiatry. As you write a book your thoughts become more more distilled, more yeah. clear and to See be honest... The discipline I'm, of writing. The discipline of writing and to be honest all the irritations I'd felt over the years and I, and I think it's important to say that I spent 20 years being an academic and 20 years being a clinician in my career and in my 20 years being a clinical psychologist I worked in largely acute psychiatry so I worked in an asylum in Glasgow with locked wards and a forensic unit and it was absolutely fascinating Mm. but that was psychiatry in the 1970s and and, and, uh, late 70s and then for the last 10 years of my career I worked in a a boutique psychiatric hospital of which I was a director so I've had at the beginning and the end of my career I've seen psychiatry in action Yes and to be honest over 40 years it hasn't changed much mm. apart from the fact it's become more and more biologically focused and less and less psychotherapy focused right. which is an advantage in some ways because it allows people like me non-medical clinical psychologists and other people psychologists you know other sorts of counselors to actually work with people with mental ill health or mental mental health problems yes but the issue is that psychiatry is still the dominant force, if you like, in saying this is what mental illness is about. Mm. And I think a number of the premises which, on which psychiatry are based are wrong.
0: So we're going to dive into that, but just, just set the ground for somebody who's come into this conversation. And, and we touched on it last time, but just succinctly. What's the difference between psychiatry
1: and psychology? Okay. Because they're okay. all A psychiatrist s- is someone who's done medicine, gone through medical school, qualified as a doctor, and then does four years of post-qualifying psychiatry. And yes. then they become a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists of New Zealand or yes. UK or wherever. A psychologist is someone who does a first degree in psychology, then a postgraduate degree in a master's or, or, or a PhD yep. in clinical psychology, counselling psychology, or one of the other forms of psychology. Yes. So in fact, what you've got, and, there, and there's a real big difference here, because in psychology you work with continuums you talk about bowel curves you talk about here's normal two standard deviations out is abnormal yes. whereas in psychiatry because it has comes from medicine and wants to be a medical discipline yes. it works with illness so you have a discrete cut off so these people are well these people are sick right right so this person uh, for instance has is has a normal blood pressure this person has you know, yeah. a problematic blood pressure. Very this person, measurable. Yeah, yeah. And this person has this person has a, a PSA score on their prostate of X, and this person has X plus ten. So therefore, this person has prostate cancer, and yes. so on. So they work on an illness model with its discrete cutoffs. So you have people who have schizophrenia and people who don't have schizophrenia. Yeah. You have Just- people who have depression and people who don't have depression whereas in psychology of course we go well hang on it's a normal distribution so actually where you draw a line is quite arbitrary yes right and to say these people are sane and these are Ill, and these people are ill is a nonsense mm. and of course in psychiatry although they deny it they have immense problems in determining who has a mental illness and who doesn't and in fact they can't do it well at all right I'm
0: getting a real sense of almost sort of a clash between approaches of one that's slightly more in touch with the actual subject and one that's very much a sort of a rational scientific approach if you know what I mean in terms of a, it's almost like a, a medical scientific yeah,
1: well I think yeah, well I think psychiatry pretends it is medical and scientific. But the science that underpins psychiatry isn't science at all. Right. Okay. And is that part of the challenges with the model? It is, because it's based on a falsehood that psychiatrists can reliably diagnose mental illness, that these mental illnesses actually exist, they're not only reliably diagnosed, they also are valid, and that they have treatments they can then apply to this Illness. So if you go along and you're hypertensive, you take an, anti, you take an antihypertensive. Mm. If you've got a thyroid problem, you take thyroxine. If your PSA score is, say, 60, people know that there's a prostate problem. You'll have an MRI, you'll be diagnosed, and somebody will come along and take your prostate out or do other treatments. The problem in psychiatry is. There are no biological markers of any of the so-called 256 mental illnesses that we currently have in DSM-5, the Diagnostic Bible. Right. Not one single biological marker. And what do you mean by a biological marker? A test. Right. So if you go along and the doctor goes, oh, you complain of urinating too much at night, the doctor thinks, oh, you could have prostate cancer. But he doesn't then remove your prostate because he thinks you've got prostate cancer. He'll send you off, he'll do blood tests, he, if, if they come back high, he will then arrange an MRI, he might arrange a biopsy, or he or she will arrange a biopsy, and so on. So at the end of the day, my idea as a GP that you might have prostate yes. cancer is actually checked out against biological markers, right. absolute tests. In psychiatry, there are none of those, Right, not one. And is that one of the major premises on which the model is built? Well, of course it is, because they say, and uh, and let me quote Lieberman, Jeffrey Lieberman's a very interesting character, and he's the forefront voice of psychiatry because he was chairman of the American Psychiatric Association, but he was also chair of the DSM-5 committee. Mm. So Jeffrey Lieberman is very important, and he wrote a book in 2015 called Shrinks. And in that book, which is a PR for psychiatry, he said, mental diseases are abnormal, well, that's a debate. Enduring, harmful, treatable, feature a biological component and can be reliably diagnosed. Right. Now, I would take great issues with the uh, feature a biological component, because mm. so far, they don't have a single blood test for anything. Yes. Right? And can they be reliably diagnosed? Well, the, all the evidence is, despite his claims that they can be ra- reliably diagnosed, all the evidence is that if you see three psychiatrists you will get two different opinions as to what's wrong with you right so the reliability in psychiatry when it's been tested out is very very poor I would also challenge the enduring part well of course I'd I'd encourage the enduring part and when he says treatable he means treatable with drugs right and
0: physical manipulation
1: Well, yeah, so what you do, you, you're not, you say, here. here's somebody with depression, it's got a biological component, and we are going to treat it with a drug which will address that biological abnormality. Yeah. Except, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that depression is caused by a biochemical imbalance in the brain. There's no evidence whatsoever that schizophrenia, whatever that is, is caused by a biological impairment in the brain. Mm. And in fact, there's a very interesting quote because Geoffrey Lieberman, although he wrote that in 2015 when he was chair of the DSM 5 committee which reported in 2013, he said, we do not have any biological markers or genetic markers or any biological measures yet. And here we are in 2020, we still don't, but in 2015 he was claiming that they have a biological component. And yet, Mm. there's absolutely no evidence for that. And Insel, who was a doctor who was in charge of the National Institute of Mental Health in America, actually, and it's a lovely quote, he said, uh, he actually said, um, I spent 13 years pushing on neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. I've got lots of really cool papers published at a fairly large cost, twenty billion dollars, and yet we have not made one impact on reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, or improving recovery for tens of millions of people in America. So that's the search stagger- that's staggering. It's it's shocking because here we are, all the energy in America is going to search for the biological basis of these two hundred and fifty six mental illnesses. Yeah. And they haven't found one. So if they So just so we're clear, if there was
0: a biological marker, then that would be as simple as going to see your doctor, him run, let's just arbitrarily say a blood test, and come back a couple of days later and say, oh, Mr. Edwards, yes, you seem to have um, X type depression
1: and Y type schizotype E. Yeah. I mean, just take you know, if your your thyroid's not working well, the doctor goes, oh, I think your thyroid's not working well, Mm. then they do a blood test. And on the basis of that blood test, they will prescribe thyroxine. Or you go along and you say, I'm feeling weary. They take a blood test and your iron levels are alone. They'll prescribe you an iron tablet or infusions or whatever. But in psychiatry, it's all opinion. I think Hmm. you've got schizophrenia. I think you've got bipolar. Hmm. I think you've got schizoaffective disorder. But we know that when it comes to opinions, (sighs) people have different ones. Everybody's got one. Exactly, and the interesting thing is you can't even get human beings to agree what day of the week it is, right? So there's only about a 95% agreement on today is Thursday, for example. So in psychiatry, this science, this medical discipline, every diagnosis is nothing more than opinion. A social construct. Well, that's also important. Of course, Mm. wouldn't it be nice to believe that the 256 mental illnesses in dsm-5 actually exist mm. but what people don't know generally don't know is that how do these disorders get into the bible well if you take the, bible the, the, the DSM. dsm the diagnostic manual in dsm-1 homosexuality was a, a mental illness in dsm-2 it was a sexual deviance and in dsm-3 it wasn't there at all why not well because they had a vote Hmm. 5,500 American psychiatrists went, no, homosexuality is not a mental illness, and 3,609 said, yes, it is. So the 5,000 won, and out went homosexuality. Now, isn't that bizarre? So what is or is not a mental illness comes down to a vote. And that happens every time the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Mental Health Association actually comes to, we need to revise our diagnostic criteria, and it's voted in and voted out. So things come and go. When I grew up, the alcohol dependence syndrome was brand new, right, in DSM-3. I actually disagreed with it. I, I don't know where it came from. I, I thought this is not my experience of people with alcohol and drug things, but there it was, the alcohol-dependent syndrome. By DSM-5, it's gone. We now have alcohol use disorders, and so on. And uh, paranoid schizophrenia. We know paranoid schizophrenia, don't we? Yep. It's not there anymore. It's right. gone. Where's it gone? Uh, because what happened was, every time there was a new DSM, the numbers of mental illnesses went up. right? So this time, the chairman promised that we won't have any more. Hmm. But there was pressure to bring in half a dozen other things like hoarding or excoriation disorder or whatever. So they put them in and then they had to collapse things together. So all the schizophrenia it got... it's untidy. So they, put, they collapsed them together. So there's a political... The whole thing, every psychiatric diagnosis, is a political debate. For example, PTSD only got in because the veterans from Vietnam campaigned furiously and got it in, Mm. right? And that is the only disorder in the 256 where the cause of the disorder is known. And it's due to experiencing life-threatening, overwhelming, horrific events. So, here we have 250 swifties disorders, which are voted in and voted out. Do they actually exist is very interesting. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, factitious disorder and brief reactive psychosis, they came into being in DSM-3 because Spitzer, who was the chairman, Dr. Spitzer, actually read a paper by two psychiatrists in America and went, oh yeah, I haven't heard of this before, invited them in, they turned up in Washington really cool. to, to, to have a chat, he wrote the criteria for factitious disorder and brief reactive psychosis in an afternoon, took it to the committee, they voted it in, and it's still there. This, yeah. It, it's... It, and, and what happens is, here is a science. Now, the interesting thing is, in medicine... You say a science, though. Well, that's,
0: they're trying to be a science. Because, you... Because, so I have degrees in psychology, and and I know psychology is different, but again, as soon as we start looking and, and studying the human being, like, when we're talking very much about the inner world, not the outside yes. world, so, you know... I've just had wrist surgery, so um, you know it, the wrist wasn't working well. Yes. I go and see a surgeon. Yes. We have an MRI. Exactly. We had a little look inside. We see the problem. We cut it. I get okay. put to sleep. Take yeah. to sleep. Yeah. Da da da. Yeah. Take yeah. it out.
1: In and psychiatry, you go along with a little problem. There's no objective measure of whether that's... There's no
0: MRI. There's no, no R-
1: MRI or any biological markers. Yeah. And then they will give you drugs to deal with the supposed cause of the disorder that the psychiatrist mm. thinks you have. Which is pretty bloody scary.
0: Look, it is scary. And I guess, I it, guess the, the challenge I have had, even with psychology as well, yeah. was that, you know, well, right from the start, I, I, I did a bachelor in science, yep. but there were people on the same course who did a bachelor in arts. Yes. Right. And, and the difference between the two was the electives in the first year. Yep. So that had nothing to do with the psychology course. So it's always struck me strange that psychology, let alone psychiatry, which I've never really delved yeah. into, um, you know, it's a science, it's an art, it's yeah. a review of literature, yeah. it's, it's this, it's that, and, and the actual source
1: subject is so unknown. Yes. And the source subject is study in itself. Yeah. Look, when I did my PhD viva, in England you have to do a viva, you have to turn up with your PhD and they'll ask you questions. The first question I got asked, Bill, what is science? But fortunately, on the way to the PhD viva, I'd actually read the examiner's latest book and I said, science is a social construction. What constitutes knowledge today is not what constituted knowledge in the past. So the interesting thing is that all science is a social construction. Yes right so we just have to say that for example in psychology and medicine a lot of faith is put on the randomized controlled trial hmm. that's the the gold standard but actually there's huge problems with randomized controlled trials huge hmm. problems because if you do a randomized controlled trial you have to exclude people who might bring in extraneous variables so i've done research on motivation and uh heroin use where In the end, we got a sample where we gave a motivational intervention to, and the other half didn't get it, and we could show that motivational work actually made people adhere to treatment longer. Tick. The only problem is, the 200 people we ended up with did not represent the clinic. So what you've got, we had beautiful internal validity, but it was not ecologically valid. It didn't apply to the outside world. It didn't apply to the real world of the clinic. And that's the trouble with all the depression studies, at any randomised controlled trial, you're so keen to keep it clean mm. that you actually end up with an artifice. So is it, the,
0: the, the sense I'm getting is it's almost like the more you narrow down and narrow down and narrow down, Yep. the more gaps and holes you'll find Absolutely. in things that you know, and hence why we've got 250 different uh, entities in, in, in the DSM-5.
1: But do they actually exist, well, you see?
0: Even as a social construct, the more you dive down, it, it it strikes me that also, how do I put it? There's not that chunking up either, and and looking at oh, hang on, a minute, we've got 250 disorders. Yeah. Where, what, what what are they? Where's the meta-analysis across yeah. well, them? You see, where's
1: what happens, the well? What happens? There's a let, let's talk about yeah. and let's talk just for a moment about Anders Bridwick, Yeah. Anders Breivik was the guy in Norway who planted a bomb in Oslo, then shot out to the, went out to the island and shot 69 yes. uh, teenagers. Yeah. Right? Now when he came, uh, when he was arrested and he's taken before trial, before trial they get a psychiatric review. Yeah. And they say about him that actually he um, was a paranoid Ooh. schizophrenia, right? Now, paranoid schizophrenia has five symptoms. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganised speech, disorganised behaviour and negative symptoms. So you have to have three, you have to have one of the first three and three altogether. Now, those were the five symptoms. So the two psychiatrists said, yep, he's paranoid schizophrenia. And as Breivik didn't like that idea. He didn't want to be seen to be mad because he was defending Norway. So he felt he was totally sane. So his defence team got two more psychiatrists to turn up and they said ah he's got an antisocial personality disorder now the interesting thing about antisocial personality disorder there is absolutely no overlap between paranoid schizophrenia the symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia and antisocial personality disorder because antisocial personality disorder is made up you fail to adhere to social norms, you're deceitful, you're impulsive, you're, re- you're reckless to yourself mm. and others, you're irritable, you're aggressive, you're irresponsible and you lack remorse. None of those are in paranoid schizophrenia. Yet, how could two psychiatrists here say he has this and two psychiatrists say he had that? Mm. And in the end, Anders Breivik liked this answer. He went to court with an antisocial personality disorder, Norway liked it, so he went to jail, <laughs> right? But the interesting thing about that case is that it is absolutely represents a case that, or a study that I heard about. I mean, my second year of my master's degree in clinical psychology, 1974, I go over to Edinburgh University and I listen to them talking about the diagnosis and reliability of psychiatric diagnosis. Now, this study is fascinating. So what they did, they had 115 Canadian psychiatrists, 250 <clears throat> American psychiatrists, and 194 UK psychiatrists, and they gave them cases A, B, C, D, E, F. Now, case F is of interest because in case F, 53% of the Americans, of the 250 Americans, said he's got schizophrenia. right? 53%. Now, that's not very good, is it? With, with schizophrenia, it seemed to be the major mental illness. But only 53% of American psychiatrists could agree that he's got schizophrenia. The other 47% had a range of other things. The Canadians were even worse. Only 27% of them thought he had schizophrenia. Right? And the Britons, 2% of the Britons thought he had schizophrenia. Right. So what we've got here is the major disorder in the world, schizophrenia, which... Has a reliability of chance being diagnosed, because if you add all those together as a group, you've got a third of them going schizophrenia, a third of them saying he's got an antisocial personality disorder, and the other third saying, like Anders brevik and the other third are going, I don't know what he's got or he's got this. So psychiatric diagnosis is no better than chance. Now that's 1970. Yeah. So. Um, psychiatry was a very aware of this problem. So in dsm 3 Spitzer spent a lot of time writing up criteria for his 200... I think he had 296... Men, no, he, I think he had 250 odd mental illnesses. So he had great criteria for it. So they go off and do a field trial, right? After it all was published, they do a field trial which involves uh, 600 patients in six, unit, in six sites two of which were in Germany, and Spitzer got his mistress to do the study, right? So it's funded by the American Psychiatric Association, so Spitzer says this is an independent study, but he gets his mistress to do it. How does that work? Then, right, he said, Kappa is a funny statistic which actually measures reliability. You don't need to worry about it, but what Spitzer had said before, anything above 0.7 is high, yeah. anything below is less satisfactory yeah and below five is poor yeah right so he's got he's gone for seven he'd said that before for this study anything above anything around 0.7 was suddenly seen to be great so they actually lowered the bar for what was good right yeah. the best they could do oh, and then they and then they allowed the two psychiatrists who interviewed people if they disagreed they could have a little chat to see if they could agree now that's cheating. Here's a yeah. randomized blind study where you allow people who disagree to chat to each other because yes. that has to have the act of improving the reliability, <laughs> right? And then we're they did,
0: social conformity,
1: Yeah and, and then and then they did something else that was interesting. They got everyone to use a standardized a standardized clinical interview which psychiatrists in general practice out there in the world never use. So we've got three artifices. We lower the bar we, get people, we allow people to chat and see if they can agree, and then we get them to use a standardized interview. Mm. The best they could do was 0.61. So they failed their own lowered bar as to what was good reliability. But in the clinics in Germany, which were community clinics, the cappers were 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, right? And they did another little thing. If you are asked to say, what car is that? what diagnosis, no, they've got 256 diagnosis, what type of car is that? Well, if, if two psychiatrists said, it's a Mazda, the fact that one said it's a Mazda 3 and the other said it's a Mazda CX-9, that, that was agreed to be okay. So if you said he's got antisocial personality and, you, and the other one says, no, I think he's got dependent personality disorder, because they used the term personality disorder, that was a match. Because they're in the same sort of group. They're the same sort of group. So instead of using the 256 diagnosis, they boiled it down to 10 groups. Mm. That makes it easier, doesn't it?
0: This so for a little while now, and and I don't want to drag. Yeah, I'm not trying to drag off into the world of, of COVID and conspiracy. But mm. for a, a while now, what I'm beginning to become more and more and more aware of is the hubris of science, it, of the scientific approach. And don't get me wrong, I'm not throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater, but it it it's almost like science in and of itself now. Um, has become the new religion of reason, and if if a scientist says, or somebody with a PhD says, then we all bow down and we all go, "Oh, yeah. Well, we
1: well I do. like it when I'm saying it. Yeah, well, so I'm sure you, <laughs> you do. Um,
0: I, but I guess the point is that you know, even the science itself yeah. is
1: conflicting. Look, but you see, and there what, what, is no honesty around this. Well, of course there isn't, because science is an industry and science actually is highly competitive. Mm. So what you assume if you watch, I like, I love watching Channel 7 News, right? Because I find it fascinating discourse on how the truth is revealed. But often, two or three times a week on Channel 7 News, you will actually get breakthrough study. They have a breakthrough study and they interview people in a lab doing all sorts of things and they say, yes, we're on the brink, we're on the brink of a breakthrough. Yes. They're always on the brink of a breakthrough. And last week there was one on anorexia nervosa. We've identified seven genes that are linked to anorexia nervosa. And this is a breakthrough study and we will have a drug shortly. Now, I've heard that over and over and over and over and over again, because a news item like that gets them more funding and Associate Professor Fred then becomes Professor Fred and becomes bigger, holier, mightier yeah. than all the rest of it. Yeah. The, the interesting thing, by the media, but it's PR. It's it's actually selling. But the interesting thing is, in psychiatry, there have been no new drugs for forty years. Mm. So, despite all the money the pharmaceutical industry has put in and all the claims of genetic breakthrough, we have no new drugs. None. Mm. So here we have. So you have to see science as a highly competitive sport where people cheat all the time and if you can get an advantage by making a breakthrough crane. i mean look at the covid vaccines i mean it's wonderful we've got one we've got one no we've got one that's better do you know what there isn't one and it's possible there never will be one yes but look at the money that's going into it so science is both a social construction and a highly competitive ruthless business where knifing your competitors is on
0: and it's interesting because you know without disappearing off into vaccines. Vaccines, in and of themselves, make people feel a whole lot better. When you were talking about the guy in Norway who went to murder yeah. people, it's not socially palatable to have somebody who's just normal, who set bombs off and shot a load of people. No. He's, he's, he's you know, like you said. He has. It would, to start with, it would be nice for, if he was, um, you know, schizo- Something or other. Paranoid, because then it's yeah. like, oh, He's like that. I'm not like that. Yes. That's it. I can go to sleep at night because yeah. I know that's never going to happen within me. Yeah. And then it's like antisocial disorder. What disorder? Well, that's a bit closer to home. Uh-huh. That's a bit closer yeah. to home. Yes. But still, it's disorder and personality yeah. and antisocial. It doesn't matter what you call yeah. it. Yeah. It's just got disorder and but actually, personality. See, the thing something is that makes. That...
1: I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? Claremont Killer today oh. found guilty. Right, so <coughs> um, the, the person charged was found guilty of two of the three murders because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him of the third. Although he probably did it. Now, what's going to be interesting now is somebody like me will turn up and do a court report on him, a psychological report. Now, nobody wants him to be diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia, in which case he has to be sent to a psychiatric place yeah. for whatever. Right. Nobody wants that. No. So he, they want him to go to prison. They want him to go to prison, and he needs to be punished because he is bad. So there's this whole thing of the morality of mad versus bad. Mad people need to be treated. Bad people need to be punished. Now he has to be bad, and yeah. it was interesting that Anders Breivik himself wanted to be bad rather than mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because he said, if I'm mad, it it, it doesn't carry the same, same weight, weight of the as if I'm just arms. bad. Yes. Right. Now the interesting thing about that and the whole reliability of diagnosis is that in DSM4 they had field trials and so they improved DSM3 into DSM4 so reliability got better yeah except the field trial they never published it because according to the American Psychiatric Association they ran out of money doing the study yeah right they yeah. gathered the data they hadn't couldn't afford to analyze it yet the sales of DSM3 netted 84 million dollars the book so Here we have an institution that couldn't actually find enough money to do a data analysis. Because you know why? Because the reliability was appalling. So we come to DSM-5. And there's a lovely DSM-5 field trial. And the headline is, we have cracked it. We have reliable psychiatric diagnosis. And he was lovely. He said, a rose is a rose is a rose. We can always guarantee that a rose is a rose is a rose. And then he presents data where all the kappa scores which we want to be above 0.7 were no more than 0.5 and when you get anxiety disorder it was 0.2 so here is something generalized anxiety disorder it's well recognized lots of people get diagnosed with it it's the most popular diagnosis yet the consistency of diagnosis had a kappa score of 0.2 so with anxiety disorders a road is a cactus is a fig tree right? And with depression, 0.32. So there, you know, a rose is a, is a, well, what is a ficus, is a, is a banana. So even in their own reports, they are damning themselves by saying, we've got great reliability, it's all improved. Now, what is very interesting that Spitzer himself, who was the chairperson of DSM-3, who campaigned for greater reliability, before he died, he actually said, we have a real problem here because reliability, if you don't use screen, if you don't get psychiatrists to cheat, and if you don't lower the bar, he said, we have very low reliability, and I don't know what to do about it,
0: mm.
1: right? I know what to do about it. Don't diagnose people. Because the mental health disorders, the 256, there's reliability, and then there's validity. Reliability is three people saying, oh yeah, that's a giraffe. Validity is then testing the animal that they said was a giraffe to actually find out whether it has the DNA of a giraffe. Now what happens in psychiatry, they don't agree, three people never agree that it's a giraffe, and when they've done the validity test it turns out they're all zebras. What is fascinating is if you take these discrete disorders of schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Now bipolar disorder is totally separate from schizophrenia. Schizoaffective is a mixture of the two, presumably. So what you can do, you take a hundred of each of these, and this has been done, and you give them, everybody, you give them a symptom checklist. So you give a hundred symptoms, and they tick them off. You then factor analyze it. Factor analyze statistical yep. technique, which puts things together. How does your yep. data go together? And what you get, beautifully, is you get three factors. Right. But they're not schizoaffective. Um, the bipolar and schizophrenia what you get is negative symptoms so that's people being flat being withdrawn not having any energy mm. being amotivational. you yeah. get positive symptoms which are things like hallucinations and delusions mm. and then you get cognitive impairment yeah now what possibly could cause that and the answer is childhood neglect and abuse Right. So from my perspective, I think you can take all the diagnoses in psychiatry Mm. and you can boil them down to one explanation. Childhood, neglect and abuse. And the studies of adverse childhood experiences speak very loud to your best preventive of having a mental health disorder when you're 35 is having a very loving, warm and connected mother this is not biological it's psychological it's about attachment it's about it's about uh, attunement and it's about having a mum who's or a primary caregiver who's maternally warm and what is interesting darwin did not say it's the survival of the fittest he actually said it's the survival of the nurtured and when you mm. do studies longitudinal studies and you rate mums with their children that the quality of that relationship is predictive of mental health or mental instability 30 years later. So I don't think you need to do diagnosis at all. So when I sit with somebody, and I sat with somebody yesterday, a new patient for the first time, and I walked in and I always say, what brings you to see a psychologist? Yep. And he told me, right?
0: Story, story, story. Story, story,
1: story. And I sat there and listened for 10 minutes and I said, okay, what happened? And he said, what do you mean? I said, No, oh, what happened to you to make you be like this?
0: Yeah, why are we choosing these stories?
1: Yeah, well, it's not just why are we choosing the stories. Why? Well, I mean, I'm just accepting oh, yeah, the stories yeah. were real. But I mean, you're, you've told me what your issues are. He, he was fifty. He was isolated. Yeah. He, you know, he had no friends. He, he was successful, but he he couldn't make connection. And he told me about his distant father and his completely re- remote, non-existing mother. Hmm. No one had ever attached to him. So here he was, and you see, and what neglect does, if you have a parent, a mum, or a dad, or the pair of them who neglect you, they don't do anything wrong with you, you just don't get enough of the right stuff. Yes. So if you don't get the right stuff and you end up being neglected, you end up with negative symptoms. So you have all these symptoms of withdrawal, apathy, because there's no purpose. Now what is interesting, there's been a study of schizophrenia, and what they have shown is the best predictor of being paranoid schizophrenia is being neglected as a child and then being sexually abused. Right. Right? So sexual abuse, along with the neglect, actually makes you become paranoid. But if you get put in an orphanage, you end up with negative symptoms because you're bored, no one's looking after you. So the whole notion of schizophrenia being an entity, which is a, a secular disease on its own, or a separate disease on its own, is complete nonsense. Because they can't diagnose it anyway. Right? Even in the last DSM-5 trial, mm. the best agreement they could get on schizophrenia was 0.5 a Kappa score of 0.5, which is hopeless. I mean, you know, if you go to three psychiatrists, two of you, one's going to say you've got schizophrenia, one's going to say you've got something else, and the third one's going to say something different again. So if you ever have a psychiatric diagnosis you don't like, go and see a different psychiatrist, and you'll get a yeah. different opinion.
0: To me, what's coming out here is is this. As soon as, soon as you're bringing in um, some sort of childhood trauma, mm. which is a theme that's been turning up in the podcast of yes. recently. I've had in-depth conversation about codependency or pronounced fawn, yes, born, yes. Uh, very much from some sort of trauma response sure. as a child. Um, went deep into boarding school syndrome.
1: Oh yeah, with boarding school syndrome. It, it, yeah,
0: which is something for myself. Yes. Um, and spoke to one of the world-leading experts on that. And also with narcissism. Yes. Um, I was speaking to Professor Sam Vagnin, and I did yeah. a... a, a I, I, I helped him with a lecture on his channel where he mapped out the early development of a child and then got to this dead mother, good enough mother. Yes. And then the fact that when he mapped it out to almost, when it gets to, you know, there will be a collision with with reality when we have to create some sure. sort of protective persona. Sure. And that. That just seems to be part of well, well, development donald
1: trump is a brilliant example of narcissism well right? yeah it's a, never a his successful fault. we've we've never i mean he always a says sux- with the best people successful classic their... narcissist yes, yes. And
0: i don't mean successful as in the money as in there is there's i'm coming to understand now there is a shit ton of failed narcissists sure and, and, and they go through the cycle of aspiring collapse, yeah. fail, aspiring collapse. Yeah. There are only a handful who are actually successful classic narcissists, such as Donald Trump. Yes, but, and the but system look at the way work. he
1: does it, because he cannot stand any prick of his psychological, of his narcissistic bubble. Mm. So when things go wrong, like 200,000 dead people with COVID, he blames the medical people. Oh, yes. He externalises all the blame. The who, and, the China syndrome. Yeah, and then he goes, I've been the best president ever. I've done more for the black people in America than anybody else. And you go, what are you talking about? Yeah, we're, we're dealing wonderfully with this. The disassociation is enormous. So, But you have to wonder about his childhood. Yes. See, and I think he got lots of very nasty messages about himself. And so I think what he did, he created this bubble around mm. him.
0: And so, yeah, I mean, P- Professor Salmon's point forward is that um, as that protective persona starts to develop... Yes. With a, with a nurturing mother, you almost put positive energy into this thing, yes. which helps you to grow and flourish, etc. Yeah. With With a, a dead mother or- A highly negative mother. Yeah, or or clinical separation such as boarding school. Yes. Um, th- you then start feeding it with less than great energy. And then with the stories we start to tell ourselves yep. about this, yes. and, the, and, and, and we're then filling the superego yep. with tons and tons of stories about ourselves yep. And, and this negative stuff and 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 for those who don't get it the superego is almost like a I mean Richard Cranham does this beautifully it's like this dumb recorder yeah. that just plays back yes. a hybrid of all of all the shit that you've been told and picked yeah. up yes and and, and 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 that's the voice that's going oh, no, 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 you shouldn't yeah. be doing this shouldn't be doing that and, and you know it's, it d- does serves you well at times to just go shut the fuck up I know. um but
1: how we talk to ourselves is critical I mean I mean, let's just talk about depression for a moment. I mean, mm. we know that in a psychiatric model, depression is caused by a serotonin imbalance of the brain. Now, that's an idea. It's been around for 50 years. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. Yeah. None, because you can't do serotonin levels in the brain. And there's no evidence that anything to do with serotonin. I mean, there's 110 neurotransmitters in the brain. Why pick on poor old serotonin? But we now treat depression with drugs which actually called antidepressants, which aren't antidepressants they're serenic drugs so they make
0: serenic serenic. they make 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 you serene flatline
1: yeah flatline so you give antidepressants to depressed people to balance up the serotonin deficiency that they don't have and i think with these drugs which although they are claimed to work if you put all the studies together about antidepressants not just the published ones but the ones the drug companies didn't publish and they've been obtained through freedom of information, you then find that the impact of antidepressant, <clears throat> antidepressants on depression is zero. Right? You might as well be given a vitamin C tablet believing it's an antidepressant and you would do as well. And the interesting thing about the studies are that in the antidepressant group who are getting really getting the antidepressant or the serenic, there are more dead bodies than the people getting vitamin C tablets because often people taking antidepressants Mm. the rate of suicide is higher so here we have a drug called antidepressants which in the main are more prescribed to anxious people than they are to depressed people now how does that work so i've got hypertension i take a hypertensive in psychiatry i've got hypertension so i take an aspirin so i take a drug for a totally different disorder i mean it's just bizarre isn't it so here we have The nonsense of psychiatry, so antidepressants aren't antidepressants, they're serenics. Mood stabilisers, so-called, aren't mood stabilisers. They're either antipsychotics or antiepileptic drugs. How does that work? Well, it works by slowing down your brain. So if you slow down people's brains enough, they don't react. It's just basically sticking the foot on the brake pedal. Exactly, pulling on the handbrake Mm. on the brain. And then, of course, you have anti-anxiety drugs, which actually are anti-anxiety drugs, like benzodiazepines, but they work so well that people become highly dependent on them yeah. very quickly, and then you can't get them off of them.
0: Well, we just had Jordan Peterson, you know, one of the most you know, leading-edge renowned intellectuals, yes. come yes. out and talk about his benzodiazepine yes. yeah. Yeah. dependency yeah. 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 for yeah. the last
1: yeah. the, three or I mean, four the, years. The issue is that back in 1998, there was a paper that said you do not prescribe these unless you're getting on the plane and travelling and that's the only reason to take them to help you sleep on a a long-haul flight. Mm. Otherwise, they're so dangerous we wouldn't prescribe them. They sell in their millions. So, you see, and there's antipsychotics, which aren't antipsychotics either. Antipsychotics, in fact, are again brain-seizing drugs, and the evidence now is, on long-term studies, that if you take an antipsychotic to deal with your schizophrenia, which I think you have, for which there's no object marker, if you take that for 20 years you shorten your life expectancy and you open yourself up to a whole raft of nasty side effects and illnesses but not only that the people with schizophrenia so called who the opinion of the doctor who they don't get prescribed antipsychotics 10 years on they're doing better than the people being prescribed the antipsychotics hmm. so here we have an industry which cannot diagnose disease reliable makes up the diseases anyway there's no blood tests so in psychiatry mental health orders are invented in medicine they're discovered and then they're treated with drugs which actually don't work
0: or do the thing that they're supposed to well, they don't well do th- same yeah, thing, i mean but... they don't work
1: i mean they just don't work so if you want to see somebody absolutely knackered put them on uh, an antidepressant for 10 years mm. and you will see somebody who is in the land of blur and who has no sex life because they have absolutely no sexual interest and now the British Royal College of Psychiatrists of last year released a report saying anyone being prescribed an antidepressant needs to be told they're going to have withdrawal effects if they try to stop them now that hasn't happened by the Royal College of Psychiatrists here or anywhere else but the Royal College of Psychiatrists in Britain have been brave enough to say antidepressants Cause withdrawal effects, and yep. the, the industry totally denies it. So, so
0: if we dial out of, if we could just come out for a minute and dial out of of of, of the fact that we have a model of psychiatry, which is the dominant model of yes.
1: psychiatry, and a very expensive
0: model, more expensive, and I take it is is, is more do- dominant than almost like psychology. Well,
1: uh, it is very interesting. I mean, I yeah. ended up being director of a private hospital. So there was my mate, the <clears throat> GP, my mate, the psychiatrist, and me, and we actually bought and ran a psychiatric hospital for a decade. And we turned something which was dreadful into something which I thought was extraordinarily good. And the most interesting thing about that, that after about five years of doing this, one of the, well, they both said to me, come on, Bill, we'll get you so you can admit people. Right, because then it takes a lot, you know, it helps us and you can admit people. (coughs) So he made an approach to the private insurance, and they said, he can't admit people. He's not a doctor. I said, well, I've got a PhD. And they went, no, no, but you're not a doctor, doctor. Only doctors can admit people to hospitals. And I go, but it's a psychiatric hospital. Uh, You know, we know that psychotherapy. it. We know that psychotherapy does better than all the drugs. And they went, but you won't know how to diagnose people. And I said, you're totally right, I won't. And they said, well, unless we've got a diagnosis, we can't fund them. And you go, what craziness is this? Yeah. And that is the problem. The very model that uses diagnosis, expensive drugs and all the rest of it becomes so expensive yeah. that it doesn't actually deliver. I mean, it doesn't deliver a good service anyway, because the whole thing, I think, is I think it's the emperor with no clothes. And yet <laughs> all the insurance companies use it oh, and so yeah. it becomes very expensive for consumers and you know clinical psychologists are cheaper than psychiatrists so if you were setting up a if i believe you were setting up if i was to set up a, a, a service for people with mental illness now i wouldn't have any psychiatrists in it hmm. right i would have purely lots and lots and lots and lots and a high variety of counselors now here's another little thing that people don't like to say i'm a clinical psychologist I've got a master's degree in psychology, I've got a PhD. There is no evidence whatsoever that that makes me a better therapist than anyone, Yeah. right? So we know that qualifications, length of experience, have no impact on your capacity to be a good therapist. Mm. So actually, I think you could train up people very quickly to be effective therapists, and you could pay them Reasonable amount of money, but we don't have to pay them a million dollars a year like most psychiatrists do, mm. and you could have cheaper mental health services which are more accessible. Because mm. there not been a meta
0: meta study which demonstrates that just merely spending concentrated time on someone, never mind never mind the, the CBT or this that it the not, other, or yeah. other, because I think I think there was a study that that compared that to. Massage and, yep. and things like that. And it sure. was found that just the act of pretty much what we're doing right now yep. is- is it's therapeutic. Hugely therapeutic. And, and in a, in a society where we're becoming incredibly- Specialized? Well, I was going to say okay. <laughs> disjoint. Oh, okay, and, okay. sorry. And, and unconnected. Yes, yes. Because we talk through yeah, phones, yeah. Okay. which are just like a shitty synthesis yeah. of, a, of a conversation. But, um, but to actually spend quality time where you are heard yes. and you listen sure. and you are, there is space and you are legitimised and normalised and your experience is that, that in and of itself,
1: I mean, is that pretty much what you'd teach these therapists today? It, it, it would. Look, we know that what kids need, the five ingredients that children <clears throat> need to flourish is they need a primary caregiver who is playful, spends time with them rolling down hills on roundabouts, craft mornings, having fun with them. We know we want a primary caregiver who is loving and that's not just that sort of British way, I love you, but I'm never going to (laughs) say it, is actually saying, oh you know, hello Bryn, you're gorgeous, you've got lovely blue eyes, Mm -mm 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 -mm." I love you. So you want the expression of, you are wonderful, I love you. You want also to be accepted, so you want parents who accept you just for whom you are, so not for you being a good little boy who puts his little soldiers away, but accept you just as you are. You want a parent who's curious, and you also want a parent who can tune in and, uh, uh, into your feelings and say, I can see you're a bit pissed mm. off today. Talk to me about why you're angry. What, how did I get it wrong? What made you angry today? Yeah, I can understand that. So you want attunement. Now, that is called PLACE. P-L-A-C-E. Playful, loving, accepting, curious, empathic. Now, I say, when I used to teach psychology, I used to say to people, come on, all you have to do is walk in that room. I don't care who you've got sitting there. You have to walk into the room and you have to ace it. You have to be accepting, curious, and highly empathic, Yeah. right? And that will get you most of the way. Anthony Storr, a British psychiatrist, very lovely man, he actually wrote a book, The Art of Psychotherapy, in 1972, where in it he has one sentence which I think every counsellor in the world should have tattooed over their eyes, if you in front of their eyes, and it was this. He said, whenever I go to see a new patient, as I open my office door to go and greet them, I see written on the door, the back of the door, what is it about this person that I can love? Which is the second thing, which is the second yeah. thing. How love. And I mm. know that when I say that to clinical psychologists, they go, oh, we're talking about love. And I go, yes, love. What is it about this patient that you can love? And I said it to somebody this week. I said to her, I love your struggle with your belief that you think you only exist by doing and you can't just be. I love that struggle. I said, I can see it's tormenting your life. I see it's causing you enormous pain because all the energy you're putting into being successful is actually removing you from all your connections. So I love your struggle and I want to help you with it. Right? And he just squirmed. But you also need to be a bit playful, right? You also need to be able to, in time with the patient, have a bit of fun. So I think if I have a super strength as a a psychotherapist, it's that I am a bit playful and I can actually convey to people, don't take this too seriously. Yeah. Right. And I had a patient come in who was enormously tall, and she said, I don't fit in. And I said, hmm, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and I joked with her, and she's got all these concerns about her family and looking after everybody. And every time I suggested that she might want to look after herself, she went, yes, but. So she's now patient, yes, but. And I, and I can play with that. Yes. And I can see, and, I, and by, it is teasing, but by teasing her with a sense of, I love this about you. She is actually reflecting on the way she interacts with the world, mm. and she will get better. Yes. So we know that in therapy, if you're playful, loving, accepting, curious, and empathic, the patients will do well. Mm. But there is something else. And it's very funny. We know that if you do studies, if you've referred to, of yeah. you, go, you get 1,000 a, a people with condition X, and 250 get A treatment, B treatment, C treatment, D treatment we know that irrespective of whatever they get, about 70% of them will do well. Mm. But when you look in this treatment box A, you will find that some therapists did really well, had really good outcomes, but a few were dullards. Mm. So you had some geniuses and some dullards. And then when you come to the next intervention, irrespective of what it was, you've got genius therapists and and dullards, dullards, and all the way through. So some therapists are great at doing it, and some are dullards. Wouldn't it be interesting to find out the difference? So Scott Miller, who's an American researcher into psychotherapy, said, I'm going to find the difference. Yeah. And this is how he tells the story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's so good, it doesn't matter if it's not true. It's, <laughs> you know, Why let the truth get in the way of a good story? Yes. And what he said was that he'd done this research. They videotaped a 1,000 interviews all around the States, and they put them all together, and they looked, and they knew which therapist deemed to be better so they'd go in and say who's your best therapist okay we'll videotape her who's your worst therapist okay we'll visit you know we'll videotape them when they looked at the videos they went fuck there's nothing obvious here between the geniuses and the dullards say oh fucking hell how do we do this And they spent a lot of money so apparently he was in norway talking about this study and saying okay well we're going to announce the Mm. the reason why some people are geniuses and some people are dullards <clears throat> and he gets on the plane and he's coming home and he's sitting in business class and says, bugger, bugger, bugger. you know my career is going down the gurgler because you need to be a successful researcher will i become a professor that all that stuff. Yeah, yeah and lo and behold the bloke they start chatting he starts chatting to the bloke next to him he says and what do you do he said oh i'm a, an author and i'm a publisher uh, and i'm involved in creating a book he said oh what's the book and he said oh it's the cambridge university book of excellence so Scott Miller goes, excellence? What sort of excellence? He said, oh no, just excellence in life. He said, well, what sort of excellence? He said, oh, why ballerinas ballerinas are excellent, um, pitchers and, in baseball are excellent, uh, pianists are excellent, architects are excellent, blah, blah, blah. And so Scott Miller goes, what about psychotherapists? And he said, oh, it'd be the same for psychotherapists as it is for everybody else. There, there is something that makes for excellence. And Scott Miller goes, please tell me, what is it? And he said, you'll have to buy the book and went to sleep. <laughs> so he bought the book. And the Cambridge Book of Excellence, which is this big, has one theme. What makes people excellence is practice with feedback. Right. right? But it's practice with feedback from your audience. Mm. So a brilliant architect, keeps on going back to his clients. A ballerina... He
0: looks at the building. And, yeah. and
1: well, he takes it back to the clients. What do you think of this? So you yeah. constantly get this evaluation of how you're going. Mm. And Scott Miller sat there and said, that's it. And he tells the story that in watching these videotapes, he hadn't picked it up, but some therapists would, towards the end of the session would say, Bryn, how are we going today? How has this session been? How have we been in terms of my style with you? Mm. How have we been in terms of what we've discussed? How good a fit am I with you for doing the work you want to do? And overall rate the session. So there's now these Scott Miller rating scales, which run from 0 to 10. And at the end of every session, I hand one to a patient and I get scored. Now what you want is cross, 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 all the way down the right-hand side. Yeah. So you've been a good fit, you've dealt with the goals. That's what your ego would want. No, it's what you yeah. do want. It's yeah. What you do yeah. want to be an effective therapist. So you get tick, 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 tick. But every now and again, you don't. Every now and again, like happened the other day, the guy goes cross in the middle, and I go, because hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Rizzle, laughs> I, I thought I've done well. So I said to him, "Now, what? So what you do? You so say what would move me from here yeah. to there?" And he said, "I want us to go deeper." Oh. And I said, "Thank you." So the next time, I said, "Okay, today we're going to go deeper. What does that mean to you?" And he started talking about his childhood. Right. And the absolute emptiness of it. And how he got bullied and became a bully. And at the end of it, he was in tears. And he suddenly and he said, he said, I've recreated in my adult life my childhood. I'm totally isolated. Hmm. And that was all because of Scott Miller's four 10-centimeter lines. So and there that. is, there is. So I think a good, a good psychotherapist, actually, needs to be able to do playful loving accepting curious and empathy with people i don't think you need to have experienced that as a childhood in fact i think sometimes not experiencing that as i didn't as a childhood actually makes you a better therapist Mm -hmm. because you actually have empathy for people's predicaments whereas if you have a really nice childhood you tend to go what the fuck's wrong with them yeah (laughs) so i think you need to be playful loving accepting curious and empathic i think you need at the end of every session to check and as a joke I also think the best training in the world to be a psychotherapist is to have a narcissistically depressed mother. <laughs> think about it. If you've got a narcissistically depressed mother, what are you constantly doing? Narcissistically depressed mother. John, please. Yeah, but you're constantly alert to how she is. So yes. you're tuning into her all the yes, time. Yes, you become hypervigilant. You, you do. And you can actually feel, you actually get to feel... People's distress.
0: you're right,
1: yeah. And what is interesting, my wife is a psychotherapist. You get that
0: from going to boarding school as well.
1: Hypervigilantly scanning the Well, you do, but that's for different reasons. (laughs) yeah, fair enough. What is is interesting is that my wife, also a clinical psychologist and a good psychotherapist, she is excellent because she had a narcissistically depressed mother. Now, I didn't, so my... Even though you... Go on. Yeah,
0: if narcissistic... If narcissistically depressed mother is actually a thing because you've destroyed that well yes
1: uh, yes you're right but we know what we're talking about in broad sense don't do it as a diagnosis because two people are but but what we know about something here she's depressed but she's also so highly egocentric yes right so she's had this child and you need to look after me rather than the other way around yeah but what is interesting my wife feels what other people feel whereas i think about what other people People feel feel. so I have cognitive empathy but I don't get distressed so my wife is a is very empathic but she can get distressed by people's distress I never do yes right I just sit there right yeah and because I'm a bit narcissistic (laughs) I think my way is best yeah Uh, I think the good therapist can actually sit with somebody in distress and not get distressed by their distress and can actually be a rock on which they Mm. can disassemble Mm. But there's well, much there's, debate about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say that because um, I myself found myself delving into just exercises that increase my own emotional literacy now, mm. and because I was quite stunted in terms the, of. I,
1: I don't think it's literacy actually.
0: I think it's regulation.
1: I think. Well, I, think, I, I found yeah.
0: that as I began to describe them more yes. and understand them more, then I could reg. I can understand it, and maybe that in and of itself regulates it. There's another thing at play as well. But, um.
1: Well, but you see, I, I think we've got this logical brain, and I think yeah, we've got yeah. this emotional brain, and I don't think this controls that. No. So, look, I'm sure, I mean, there is this thing called alexithymia, which is the incapacity to feel. Yes. Right? And there's even an alexithymia scale, which you can score yourself on. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Who knows? Look, the point about it is, I think the quality of your childhood speaks to how emotionally regulated you will be. Yes. And the worse the child, the least able you will be able to handle your emotions. So I know if I see somebody in psychological distress, I will say to them, as happened again this week, I said to them, when you feel like this, what do you need? Now that's a logical question, right? And they will say, because of the, bit of the work I tend to do, I need alcohol, I need heroin, I need benzos, I need whatever. Most people will say they need a drug to manage that. And then I say, what do you need emotionally? And the tragic thing about a lot of the patients I see is they say, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know is a failure of childhood. Because if you have nice, warm, loving, playful, accepting, curious, empathic you know, uh, empathic mothers, you know what to do. Hmm. Oh, let me try this on you, all right? <laughs> Think about being eight years old. Yeah. Okay. Think about going to school. Think about the school you went to. Yes. Okay. Now think that you've had a really miserable day at school. Oh, were you at boarding school at eight? Yes. Ah. Okay. <laughs> Problematic. Okay. Okay. So here you are at eight. You've had a really bad day at school. You go back to your house. Yeah. Were you H- were, home or house? Well, were you <laughs> were you going were you actually in a boarding school seven days a week? Uh, Monday to Friday. Monday to Friday, okay. So you're talking Friday evening now, aren't you? Yeah, Friday evening. You've had a shit week at school. You go home, you walk in, and you're still feeling shit from the week. What would you have done next?
0: Watch TV or just, Mm. just like, be, probably be generally quiet, Mm. and and just be glad that it's
1: over. Sure. You've got an eight-year-old son, okay? And he's had a shit day a week. He walks into the house. What would you like him to do? Talk to me about it. Mm. So, you had learned by the age of eight that the way to deal with uncomfortable emotions was to soothe on your own by distraction. Mm. So, you'd watch TV. Oh, dissociate. Get, yeah. Sorry? Dissociate. And dissociate. Sorry. Now, as an adult male, when you get distressed, <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, retreated off to myself. Yes. And how much do you use alcohol or other substances to do that?
0: Um, Up until about 18 months ago, frequently, Mm. I had things going on in my life where I actually came to the point of, I don't know whether it's my own journey in life, where I suddenly started to go, no, I need to feel this. Mm, mm. I need to actually sit with this, even when it's shit.
1: Yes, yes. You see, and... I would say And that was an epiphany. It was.
0: But before, yeah. oh, easy. You know, TV, um, food, f- booze. Yep. Yeah, booze, maybe occasional joint.
1: Yep, yep. You see, and what is fascinating when I teach this stuff, and I did it last week, you go around the room, and this is a room of social workers and psychologists and whatever or the other. You go around the room, and what you find is three quarters, two thirds, 80% of them by the age of eight what do you do? Well, I used to go off my bike. I'd go down the park and hide. I'd go upstairs and watch TV. Uh, I'd, I'd beat up my brother, right? Yeah. And only a few of them say, I'd talk to mum. And even the woman who said, I'll talk to mum, she said, oh, her mum was no fucking use because she'd rush down the school and try and beat them all up and it just became embarrassing. So I ended up stopped talking <laughs> Stop to my talking mum. to mum. And, and you see, I, for every person I've seen with an alcohol or other drug problem, all of them, by eight years old, would soothe themselves by distraction. Mm. And they just carry on doing it as adults. It's so fast. Mind, Mind you, it, of course, if you're a psychiatrist, you prescribe an antidepressant for that. Yes. It, Sorry, a serenic. A serenic, yeah. Which just munch you. The
0: thing, that, the thing that comes through in this conversation is just how far a science has disappeared from the, the truth of the human experience. Look, I think and, it and has the because Hughes science story. is driven. Because what you're saying here, it it, it completely makes sense. And you know, m- my little epiphanies recently of, oh, I actually think that boarding school, as much as it was all good fun, that might have had some impact on me. And then, yeah. things open, and then things yeah. open, and then things open, and then things open. And it's not to, it it's not to suddenly put me, you know, in this needy victim of space. It's actually to to release the tension and trauma sure. and energy that sure. sit around certain Look, things.
1: And we all have that. Yeah, of course we do. I mean, my childhood was one of neglect, right? My, my mother had me when she already had two children, 10 and 8. And then oh, the you twins, said in the previous podcast, uh, Ian left along. out in the, in the yeah, ocean. And, and, and all sorts of bad shit happened. And by the age of six, I'd almost died four times. So my mother was totally neglectful what was lucky for me was I had a twin sister. So even though I was sitting there on my own, I'd have a twin sister down the other end of the, the wheelchair or whatever we were in, the pram or whatever, right? and So my twin sister actually buffered me a lot and would look after me a lot. So thank you, twin sister. What is interesting was, though, that I got sent to an English boarding school when I was 15. I was the dumb one. My, my twin sister was the bright one. So I get sent to this English boarding school, which I hated. I didn't fit in, I had a strange accent, I had a south coast of England working-class accent, and I was in this pot with all the posh boys from London. Uh, they took the piss out of me left, right and centre. Also, I didn't understand the culture. So, and no one came to visit me. My parents never came to visit me. In two years in boarding school, I never got a visit. Oh, I think my, one of my other sisters came to visit once. So uh, everyone else got visits, so I didn't. So what would I do on Sundays? I was miserable as shit. I'd go off and work. I actually did surprisingly well. And i got a levels went to university Mm. blah 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 and it's so funny that trauma neglect is actually a double-edged sword it's it can be actually i mean i had nothing to do so i would cope with the boredom of my existence by working and to this day if i have an argument with my wife i will go upstairs and work (laughs) yeah to this day i do i I learned it but some of the things we do, they're not all bad, like no, no. distraction. So I'm often taken by people who've had neglectful and traumatized childhoods that they it's a double edged sword. Yeah. It, it it makes this side shiny, but unfortunately this side undoes them. Yeah. So it, it, it's always a battle about that balance. Hmm. So
0: fascinating. I mean is Without seeming doomsdayish, given the prevalence of the psychiatric model in yes. the mental health space, I mean, yes. if we dial out, yes, you know the, the the top level leading indicators of you know people rep- people self-reporting you know cases of anxiety, depression, yes, yes. suicide, and things yes, like yes, that. Yes. There's no disputing that we've got problems going on. Oh up. look, look, right.
1: the, the, the last mental health survey in Australia showed that one in four people yeah. in a 12-month period would experience significant psychological distress. The mm. top two were anxiety and depression, then there was alcohol and drugs. Schizophrenia, whatever that is, was down the bottom. Yeah. But personality disorders were also in there. So yes, we have a lot of it, but these labels, depression, anxiety, whatever, I think a nonsense. I think what we're talking about is psychological distress. So here are people who because of their childhoods cannot emotionally regulate well, so when they get distressed they don't know what to do, and in fact they become distressed by their distress. Mm. So they use drugs or they cut or they do whatever. Now you don't need to take pills to stop that, right? And the trouble is we know that, let's just take borderline personality disorder, now, there's 20 symptoms of borderline personality disorder, but they're all the direct consequences of neglect and abuse. So 90% of people with borderline personality disorder report being neglected and or sexually abused, and those two things go together. So, And the other 10, I think, have just repressed it and forgotten it. Yeah. So here we have people with childhood trauma. In Britain, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence say for people with borderline personality disorder, you should be there is no psychiatric medications, no psychotropics, which are of benefit. In Australia, the average person with borderline personality disorder is on an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, mm. and a mood stabilizer. So they're taking probably an antipsychotic, an antiepileptic drug, and a serenic. Now, where does that leave them? It leaves them munted. munted. And then I have to come along and peel these things off one by one. Mm. So there is no psychotropic solution to having a shit childhood. No. It's and the interesting thing about shit childhoods, is why people get upset when I say this, is that in the Harvard study where they followed up five hundred, eight month old children and they did just a little video of mum and the child interacting, Yes, that was the great predictor of mental health later. So the better the quality mm. of the warmth, the better the outcome. Now what is interesting about that study, and I've forgotten what I was going to say. What is interesting about that study is that, I know what I'm saying. to say, the people who had the worst childhoods reported their childhoods were okay. Mm. And you know why they do that? They do that because it was so shit they had to say to themselves, it's all right, it's going to get better, I can't, I'll get through this. As opposed to saying, this is hopeless, I need to kill myself. And what you see, you'll see some precocious suicides, If that's the right word, you'll, you'll see some very tragic young girls, largely, who kill themselves age 9, 10, 11, 12, when they suddenly realise the neglect and the sexual abuse is so awful, then it's never going to go away, so they kill themselves, to remove themselves from the pain, right? And, but what is interesting, often when you say to people, tell me about your childhood, they'll go, it was fine, and then two weeks later, they're crying about the sheer neglect and the awfulness of their childhoods. Yeah. And if you'd asked me when I was 21, how was my childhood, I would say, yeah, it was fine. Yeah. Now, I score it 5 out of 50 on measures of playfulness. My mum wasn't playful. Loving, the word was never said. Mm. Acceptance, I wasn't. I was called little weed. Curiosity, no one was curious about me. Empathy, well, as long as you were happy, you were fine. In fact, I'm surprised I'll get 5 out of 50 if I rate myself. Yeah. But, you see, and the other problem with neglect, it makes you vulnerable to attention by others. Because you've got no connection at home, Yes you actually are a sitting duck for anyone who pays you attention. Yes. Right? So along comes, oh, let's say, a school teacher, Mr Webster, and you're a very neglected little boy, and Mr Webster starts paying attention to you, and suddenly he's getting you to do your mathematics, and he's encouraging you, and he's letting you play in the soccer team, and you start to do well, and you're making more friends, and he, he gives you spelling stuff, and you actually start to do well, and you suddenly realise you're not as dumb as you were, and you climb up the classroom, and you come top of the class, and Mr Webster likes you, and then Mr Webster sexually abuses you. That fucked shit up. <laughs> well or not i mean the trouble is or not, or not. i mean the trouble is uh the, the trouble is i had a teacher called mr webster and that's exactly what happened to me there's a bit of me that still to this day thanks mr webster because if he hadn't taken a shine to me because i was I you know I was pathetic and he saw mm. in me something and he paid me attention. I mean I know he was paying me attention because he was sexually interested in me, but but I don't care at one level because I got an 11 it- plus. I passed my 11 plus. I went I got a scholarship to the grammar school. I then went mm. got into an English public school. I got three A levels, went to university, and did a master's degree, did discussion. a PhD. So there's a strange thing about the two-edged sword of of childhood,
0: we're into nuance now, aren't we? We are,
1: because this side of it was that I was neglected and sexually abused, but this side of it is that the consequence of that, the benefit of propelled it propelled you to where you are today. I know, and that ain't that weird. Well, it just is. It just is. It just is. It just is. It just is.
0: To to put to put weird good bad, then starts to delineate it and that's half of the challenge I find it just is it It just has just been and this is part of the this has been part of I don't know the deep level of inquiry that I've had is that of recent is that so much of what we think should could happen disappear did did did, disappears from the truth of what is actually it it is now would you would you have chose Mr. Webster again who knows but it just was and it's actually sitting, being with that, yes. and recognising. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Look, I think it is. I mean, I will say to people, because you're neglected and sexually abused, you're not normal you're perfectly normal for someone who's been neglected and sexually abused but if you try to be a normal person, I mean 60% of kids actually have lovely childhoods Mm. and they go on and they do well and they're emotionally regulated and they meet other emotionally regulated people and they marry them and they have four children and they live in Mount Lawley and they stay together for 50 years (coughs) Mm. right but the rest of us we tend to have fractured relationships we tend to have problems with anger etc etc there's variations of this Mm. But sometimes, in it all, there's a strength out of this chaos, right? And I think some people, Mm. not because of themselves, because there's someone who's buffered them. And I think my twin sister actually buffered me, right, and looked after me. So I knew I was cared for. And I don't think it matters who cares for you as long Mm. as you cared. It's the survival of the nurtured. And we know that resilience is very important. the better the quality of your child the more resilient you are so what is interesting if you send a hundred people off to fight 100 people in the army off to fight, six months later 25 percent of them will have PTSD yeah and it, they're not the people who saw the worst things or did the worst things they were the people who were the most vulnerable yeah so you'll get some you know you'll get cooks who get PTSD from Vietnam or whichever last. Engagement Australia foolishly gets itself involved in, and but if you put a hundred people into combat constantly for two hundred and twelve days, they all come back with PTSD. So we can all get overwhelmed. So yes. It, 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 never mind the quality of your childhood. We <coughs> all have a breaking point. And what is interesting, and I saw a report by a psychologist on the SAS and their their rotation of troops in Afghanistan and despite psychological advice they rotated them for a year. yeah which is it's more foolish funny. it's foolish yeah. you know you need rotations of no more than 90 days. you put them in you bring them out you keep them safe then you put them back if you need but you, you, you know, putting people in war zone where you're actively in combat or you could die or you can see other people die even if you're sitting in the air base and somebody's killed that's, <clears> a, that's a life-threatening event even if you are the witness. So to put rotate people for a year is scandalous and it's actually totally against psychological mm. advice.
0: I think and the other bigger macro challenge is that until such time as we acknowledge what we're talking about here and 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 not I don't really want um default to the psychiatric model okay. which is which is also then quite convenient because we're into the just take a pill, culture, sure, and and, sure. and devoid yourself of responsibility yeah. of facing up to what's gone on yes. in your life. While we continue to deny this, the truth of what has gone on to us and in, the in childhood and this that yeah. and the other, it's not just the kids that are replaying it, but it's then it's the adults and the older adults and the older adults yes. which then are shaping the kids, and it just it's just like a conveyor belt of yeah. self perpetuation.
1: I, I do think it is changing. I mean, I am an optimist here. I do think it is changing. I mean. 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had this conversation, mm. right? So the the notion of trauma-informed therapy yeah. and the impact of trauma, so all the attachment literature from Bowlby onwards it is all pointing to the same thing. Mm. And even some of the biologically-driven psychiatrists, you know, they will cough and splutter and, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, we, we, we will know. some people get traumatized, you know, so it's there. What is interesting is that for DSM-5, uh, some psychiatrists, um, and van der Kolk being the lead, actually put up this childhood neglect and abuse syndrome, right? I've forgotten what they actually called it, but that's what it was. And of course, it didn't get voted in, did it? Because if it had got voted in, it would have come the preeminent diagnosis. It would have shifted the focus away from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So the American Psychiatric Association could not allow it in, so they voted it out. Right. But it's coming. Right. It, in DSM six, it will be there. I think. And as soon as the word childhood neglect and abuse comes in as an etiology of mental illness in adults, it will swamp the two hundred and fifty six other diagnoses. Will all shrink down into it because. Hoarding, anxiety, depression, mm. schizoaffective disorder. They're all Symptoms about trauma. Of... They're all consequences of trauma. Yes. So look, I am I am optimistic and it's it's very interesting. I mean, I was brought up as a clinical psychologist, get the diagnosis right and the patient will get well because your treatment will follow. Mm. What is interesting about that in psychiatry, there are 256 diagnoses, but they've only got eight treatments. <laughs> Antidepressants. Anti anxiety drugs, it? well, it's, it's ridiculous. Anti anxiety drugs, uh, antipsychotics, drugs for alcohol and drug dependence, um, stimulants for behavioural disorders, mm. uh, a rat bag of other things like Viagra and things for often physical complaints and maybe for sexual offenders. And then you've got ECT and this new magnetic resonance stuff. That's all you've got, right? That's all you've got. So they've got 256 diseases, but only seven or eight treatments. What the fuck? Why would you do that? Why would you create a system where we've got all these diseases which are discrete, but we've got the same treatments for them. So it's like saying, OK, you've got hypertension, I'm going to give you an aspirin. Or you've, got, you've lost your left foot, I'll give you an aspirin, because that's all they've got. It's bizarre. I mean, that's mm. not medicine. But you did make a point which you sort of came away from, which you went, ah, oh, science is actually getting in the way of human nature. Mm. I don't think there's anything new in that. I think science has always got in the way of human hmm. nature. Because I think the the pursuit of science is a very tough industry. The way to become a professor of X is to be more ruthless than your peers, yeah. is to stop you. I went to as a, you know- as That's a,
0: science, the industry, not a, science, a, the general methodology for curious
1: yeah. but, but even the methodology
0: yeah, is a yeah. social construction.
1: Yes. And so, so who makes up what is science? Well. The, the, the chemists do, or yeah. scientists do, proper science. You, yes. know, you know that psychology is not a proper science. Well, why is that proper and this not? I mean it's bizarre. Yeah. So I think science, and I think people who become, who go into the business of science and discovery, I think many of them are very ruthless. I, I look, I learnt a very interesting lesson being an academic. I just thought it was done on merit. You know, you worked hard, you were clever, Mm. you wrote funny things, and people promote you. Well, that works to a certain degree, but then it's all about politics. Mm. Because I don't play politics, I can't. It's it's just not my nature. I just tell people to get knotted. And that doesn't go down (laughs) well. But I've got colleagues who've done it extraordinarily well because they could say things they didn't believe in order to get up the tree. And so I think this whole pursuit of science and advancement, You've got to see science and advancement in exactly the same words. So yeah. how do I get advanced? Watch Channel 7 News and you will see somebody say, I've got a breakthrough. I have discovered the gene for alcoholism mm. because I've got eight rats in a lab. I just need more research money to, to come up mm. with a pill which will cure the genetic well, bias of alcoholism. But we've got
0: a breakthrough right here, haven't we? In terms <laughs> Childhood of... Childhood trauma. Well, we do. Go straight to. We do.
1: And I think what is interesting... So are we moving to a situation where the what's wrong with you model is replaced by the what happened happened. to you model? And I'm in favour of the what happened to you model and I would like, in fact, to be honest, I'm just completing a book on this very thing, which is why I phoned you because my brain had got to a point point of I want to talk about this. And what is interesting, what I do in the book, I do my psychiatry is a sham stuff and then I present this other model and then I do case studies and I've got about 12 of them which cover all the major disorders in DSM-5. Schizophrenia, here's a case of schizophrenia, well no it's a case of childhood neglect and rape. Here's a case of depression, no it's a case of childhood neglect and an extraordinary critical mother. You know here's a case of anxiety, well no here's a case of blah blah blah. So I, I have all the diagnoses and I go but look at their childhoods right? And you can explain it all by totally ignoring the diagnosis. I've always liked Irving Yalom, uh, American psychiatrist, but probably the foremost uh, psychotherapist in the world. And he actually wrote, after the first session, I can always nail a diagnosis to the patient's mast. By the time I've seen them six times, I've totally forgotten my diagnosis because <laughs> I'm working with a human being. Yeah. And he also said, the diagnosis is a label which is totally unhelpful. Hmm. So what's next for Bill after the book? Uh, well, I'm doing a couple of days a week of psychotherapy. I think that I, w- I-, I need to put the book together and give it a polish and find a publisher and do that sort of stuff. And then actually go on then then (laughs) i think i might just nick back to a little university enroll in a master's degree and do research by interviewing 25 eminent psychiatrists around the world about things like how reliable is psychiatric diagnosis how valid is psychiatric Mm. diagnosis how effective are antidepressants? How valuable are antipsychotics? So I'm going to ask 25 eminent psychiatrists around the world, COVID-19 got in the way of this, about what they think about psychiatry and the practice of there psychiatry. But I'm going to do it from perspective of getting them. And it'd be interesting to see how many of them acknowledge the very difficulties we're talking about. And, and what is fascinating... The Psychiatrist, I actually. You should record work. the conversations. Did that? that I, I know. I'll record them, that, and and then I'll debrief them and do analysis. And yeah,
0: that's a, that's a that's a short that's a short season podcast right there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but what is fascinating is that I once said to my psychiatric colleague at uh, in the hospital I was working in, and I said to him, "What do you think about psychiatric diagnosis?" And he said, "I wouldn't trust it at all, but I do diagnose people especially well." <laughs> and I said, you do know the interrated reliability of in psychiatry for any disorder is below 30%. And he said, as long as they see me, they'll get the right one. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. And you just go, that's just bizarre. I never have an argument with, with any doctor, any medically trained person. I never have a, an, an argument about diagnosis. I get a letter the other day, please see Mrs. Smith. Uh, manage her depression, Uh, she has blah, 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 blah. I put her on Lexapro, 20 milligrams, which she's no longer on, and blah, 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 please reply, All right. So I wrote back, thank you for referring Mrs. Bloggs, I've now seen her for six sessions, Uh, we have been dealing with her emotional dysregulation, and I don't use any psychiatric jargon ever. Yeah. So I never talk about diagnosis. I never argue. If it, look, I've been in situations where two psychiatrists have been arguing about what the diagnosis is, and I've been sitting there, sitting in the middle of it, and going, well, it doesn't fucking matter because you've only got eight treatments, so you know, you're know, <laughs> you all going to treat it the same way, irrespective of the diagnosis. Yeah. So there's no differentiation. And I said, look, and I, they said, what do you think, Bill? And I said, I think you're both right. And they'd argue with different things, because there's no point in having the discussion, it's nonsensical. And I think social workers and all of us, particularly clinical psychologists, who get caught in the trap of diagnosis, need to give it away. And I think if we as a discipline, the non-medical people who do manage mental health, I think we need to stop talking in medical terminology, which is nonsensical. Mm. And I think if we got rid of it, if we stop using words like, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever, and talked about emotional distress, emotional dysregulation. I think we need to use the language of the trauma people and not the language of the medical people. Indeed. And I think we would then slowly change the landscape. But remember paradigm clashes. Kuhn, the philosopher, said, knowledge accumulates which contradicts the prevailing model. But the prevailing model, because people are captains and make money out of it and get prestige out of it, will hang on to a sinking ship for a very long time. So the amount of opposing evidence has to become huge, and then there's a paradigm switch. Yes. So you have paradigm clash, paradigm switch, and then there's a new paradigm. I think the psychiatric paradigm is in its last days. It's a bit like the American emperor. empire. uh, Empire. You can see the American empire falling apart. And I think if you look closely at psychiatry, Mm. I think it's falling apart.
0: I have yet to um, get to a point where I'm super comfortable to talk about it. But I think if you went and had a look at Ken Wilber's integral theory, and the stages of Stages of almost like con- conscious development, yes, and how we go to this point of rationalisation, and then post, which brought about the Enlightenment and science mm-hmm. and things like that, and capitalism mm-hmm. together, and then we moved into this postmodern phase, and now there's chunks of us that are moving to this integrated stage, so yes. we can start to see the benefits of all the different stages before. But remember, before that, we're talking mythical stage and magical stage yeah, okay. and, and, and instinctive stage. I think, yes, what we're seeing is there's is, is a clash of two, um, but there will be some sort of integration of, there will, be, there will be something in the psychiatric model which will be worth retaining, but what that is, I don't know and I'm gonna leave you to think about that rather than chucking the baby out with the bath bathwater there'll be s- I go, something I think you
1: have to be yeah. you see
0: but that's yet there is a bit ma- of me that's a bit to of me that like,
1: would like to accept that but I'm not so sure mm. because it's interesting going back to leebman we started with leebman so let's leebman yeah, yeah, yeah. he goes here is psychiatry here is somebody with schizophrenia right now he paints a picture of this person with schizophrenia a young woman with schizophrenia but all I saw, and, and Dad's concern and Mum's concern, and I thought, you, ha- you haven't asked her ever what happened to her. And I can see, reading between the lines, that she was sexually abused by Dad. What was Lieberman's quote at the start? He said... You got it written down. He said, he said, quote unquote, mental disorders are abnormal, one in four of us get them, so they're not that abnormal, Enduring. Not necessarily. I think we can treat things very effectively with psychotherapy. Harmful? Well, harmful. Mm. I think they're adaptations. You see, what happens is, yep. if you have a nice childhood, you're wild, you're wired, your brain gets wired mm. for connection. Yeah. If you if you have a difficult childhood, your brain gets wired wired for protection. Yes. Now, I don't think that's harmful. Yeah. I think it actually yeah. works. All right treatable with drugs but i disagree with that i don't think the drugs so if we took the with yeah. drugs out we take ah, the treatable with psychotherapy feature a biological component which we haven't found yet yeah but we'd never found any weapons of mass destruction in yeah. iraq either but we Scrap went to that. war yeah. over them but that's the same sort of thing but they could still be there of course we're yeah. still looking for biological oh, yeah. things we haven't found it yet so yeah. you can't prove a negative and can be reliably diagnosed nah they can definitely not be reliably diagnosed mm
0: but you are saying there is a commonality of childhood trauma.
1: I think there's lots. I think there are 20 impacts of childhood neglect and trauma. People who have really difficult... They tend to dissociate when under stress. Yep. Right. They have rage when they get angry. So one of the questions is, how quickly do you go from naught to rage? And Hmm. everybody I've seen with difficult childhoods, why do you think we have prisons full of people, rageful, violent offenders? They've all been neglected, Hmm. right? So we've got dissociation, rage. We've got abandonment issues, right? So when they get into a relationship, they fear abandonment. They get mood instability. So they basically they're happy, sad. Their moods go up and down like Melbourne weather, right? They get um, hang on. They get relational intensity, right? So their relationships become life and death to them. They have trust issues right? They use, they, they're impulsive and they use intoxication to soothe, and they know all this and it becomes chronic. It's a chronic way of dealing with their feelings, mm. okay? Then they get flashbacks, they get nightmares, they get intrusive thoughts, but they also have this sense of being empty. They don't know who they are, right? And then, okay, they have, uh, you, you, you get people who Get paranoid when anxious. Okay. They also have this whole issue of using ways to soothe, such as alcohol. But they also cut, and then they so they do self-harming. Now, self-harming needs to be distinguished between that and suicide. If you cut, you are trying to cope. So when I see somebody whose arms are all scarred, I say congratulations on your survival, and they all go thank you because this is the way of coping. So as soon as you cut, you turn your amygdala off and you you doubt with the emotional distress. So you get high levels of suicidality, but the killer is shame. Mm. As Augustus Burroughs has said, shame is the worst fucker. Shame ruins you. And shame is put into you by somebody else. And people say, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is, I feel bad about something I've done. Shame is, I feel bad about me.
0: Yes. So there's a real So it's from diff- behaviour to yeah.
1: universal
0: yeah. personality.
1: So those are the twenty um those mm. are the twenty indicators or impacts of having a shit life. And of course, they spread all across DSM five. So if you're if, if you're somebody who gets mm. more paranoid when anxious or psychotic when anxious, you'll get schizophrenia label yeah. if you've got so maybe emotional dysregulation you'll get the borderline personality thing so maybe
0: it's not so much there's something in the psychiatry model to take out but there's something in the scientifically putting things together because you've actually just described a new
1: model and a well, model it, it's that, called yeah. dramatic fine spies that's right. how you remember them yeah. Dissociation, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. so relational intensity. So you remember dramatic fine dramatic, dramatic spies as the way I remember the impacts of childhood neglect and go. abuse. <laughs> and look, and the solution to it is sit down with people and be empathic, curious, accepting of them just as they are. And then what is it about this person I can love? And you throw in a bit of playfulness yeah and I tell you what people get better (laughs) they get better and they go off into the world yeah look there are other some specific trauma focused things like comprehensive resource models somatic uh, experiencing sensory motor psychotherapy they're all very good trauma focused interventions yeah and look, how the world has moved a long way and I think the psychiatric model is increasingly challenged Unfortunately, is when things get challenged, they tend to harden up and fight back. Yes. And of course, psychiatry is totally wedded to the pharmaceutical industry. So if you do away with this, you do away with that. So neither of these two parties are gonna do anything. Hmm. Jeffrey Lieberman's book, Shrinks, was given away by pharmaceutical companies to general practitioners. He sold thousands of copies. He made a fortune. Hmm. And it's a book riddled with errors and inconsistencies. So the last
0: question I ask my guests, Yes. and I think I already know what the answer is going to be, but um, it's a hypothetical question. Yeah. Is if you could take one question. Yes. And upload it into the collective consciousness. Yeah. So everybody sits quietly for 10 minutes and quietly reflects on it. What would it be?
1: What happened to you to make you be like this? Simple. Simple. But not, easy. <laughs> not easy simple but not easy indeed because look I, I found it very difficult to struggle to accept that my childhood was such that it actually has had adverse impacts yeah on me yeah Right. and you know I, I know that you know I can be difficult I know that I'm not always agreeable, I know I can rage. Now, I'm much less bad than I was, but you know, some people just have nice childhoods. I I went to school with, I'll call him A.G. I went to school with A.G. He had a lovely mother who was gorgeous. He had a great dad. Uh, um, A.G became head of school, went to Cambridge, became a doctor, right, got on every committee because people always wanted him on. Even if he went on as a member, he'd end up as chairperson because everybody loved him. And he could get really diverse people to work together. He never got angry with anybody. He was, could actually understand everybody's side. He was just delightful. He got married to a linguist. He had four children. He now speaks three languages. She speaks eight. The four kids went to Cambridge like he did. He even went back to Cambridge with one of them and did another degree. <laughs> and he's just been given a knighthood for services to medicine. Some guys have all the luck.
0: (laughs) There we go. Bill, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you today. Yeah, it's been good fun. It's been good fun. If people want to reach out, how do they find
1: you? Uh, Probably the best place is by email, I would think. sbill144 at gmail.com. There you go. Lovely. And actually, what I might do when I finish the book and it's all tidy and I've actually got a copy, I might come and... We might read some case studies how would that be that would be interesting <laughs> yeah and the case studies all speak and some of them are just you cannot believe what some parents will do to their children mm. you just cannot believe it there we go
0: we'll do that we will do it bill thank you thank you